Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 19. Well, we came to a very surprising outcome at the end of the previous chapter in Alma, chapter 18. We were pleased to see the way in which Lamoni responded to Ammon's teachings at the end of this chapter. Verse 40 tells us that after Ammon had said these things and expounded them to the king, that the king believed all his words. Then Lamoni called upon the Lord, saying, O Lord, have mercy according to thy abundant mercy, which thou hast had upon the people of Nephi. Have upon me and upon my people. It's at this point that something very surprising happens. In verse 42, we're told that when Lamoni had said this, he fell unto the earth as if he were dead. The final verse of the chapter told us that he lay as if he were dead for the space of two days and two nights. And King Lamoni's family, his wife and his sons and his daughters, mourned over him during this period of time. That's how the chapter ended, and we are left to wonder what will become of King Lamoni. There have been other moments in the Book of Mormon record so far where we have witnessed the demise of a leader who is out of sync with the teachings of God. Sherem comes to mind in Jacob chapter 7, for example. After confessing his sins before the people, Sherem, and in fact he says, I greatly fear lest my cause shall be awful, but I confess unto God. In verse 19 of Jacob chapter 7, the next verse says that when Sherem had said these words, he could say no more and he gave up the ghost. Then we find, curiously, in the next verse, that when the multitude had witnessed that Sherem had spake these things as he was about to give up the ghost, they were astonished exceedingly, insomuch that the power of God came down upon them, and they were overcome that they fell to the earth. We are told then, in this account, that Sherem died. But we come to understand contextually that the surrounding multitude, who fell to the earth after being overcome by the power of God, did not die. And in fact, in the next verse, it says, Now this thing was pleasing unto me, Jacob, for I had requested it of my Father who was in heaven, for he had heard my cry and answered my prayer. So we can see here some very interesting precedent for what we've just read at the end of Alma chapter 18 and what we're about to read in Alma chapter 19. Has Lamoni just died? We can certainly tell from his story so far that he has committed many acts of wickedness. So has he just died, like Sherem did in Jacob chapter 7, or is something else happening 
as what happened to the surrounding multitude in Jacob chapter 7? Well, we know the answer really before we move into Alma chapter 19, because the final two verses of chapter 18 told us that he fell upon the earth as if he were dead, and then uh, his servants carried him in unto his wife and laid him upon a bed, and he lay as if he were dead. So we know that something else is happening here with King Lamoni, and sure enough, as we turn the page now and move into Alma chapter 19, this is confirmed. We learn for certain that King Lamoni is not truly dead through the perspective of his wife, the queen. She finally consulted with Ammon on the matter, who will tell her in verse 8 that King Lamoni, quote, is not dead, but he sleepeth in God, and on the morrow he shall rise again, therefore bury him not. And we learned in two verses earlier than this, from Mormon's editorial perspective, that this thing that is happening to Lamoni as he lay as if he were dead is a manifestation of the power of God. Verse 6 says, Now this was what Ammon desired. Remember how earlier we had just read that this was the thing that Jacob desired. Now continuing in this verse, For he knew, meaning Ammon knew, that King Lamoni was under the power of God. He knew that the dark veil of unbelief was being cast away from his mind, and the light which did light up his mind, which was the light of the glory of God, which was a marvelous light of his goodness. Yea, this light had infused such joy into his soul, the cloud of darkness having been dispelled, and that the light of everlasting life was lit up in his soul. Yea, he knew that this had overcome his natural frame, and he was carried away in God. Well, we'll have more opportunity as we come back to a reading of this chapter to discuss this phenomenon in more detail and this unusual mechanism that the Lord apparently sometimes uses to teach his children and a mechanism or experience that in this case and in the case of the people surrounding Sherem, a mechanism that was desired by the prophet McConkie and Millet, for example, will help us to understand this concept more deeply. We've already read something from Camille Franck that I would like to return to as we consider the symbolism of what is happening here with Lamoni. She wrote, Once Lamoni understood his position before the Lord, his comatose state typified the death of the natural man in preparation for being born again as a man of Christ. Spiritual rebirth begins when one correctly identifies the Redeemer and the need for his mercy. This is clearly what is happening to King Lamoni. We can tell from all of this that he's a great soul. As I mentioned in the previous chapter, I think we could describe him as an elect soul. King Lamoni had a believing disposition. And as we're about to discover in this chapter, the spiritual floodgates are about to open for him and his family and his followers. It's natural to wonder, I think, as we consider this, why it is that Lamoni and these believing Lamanites will be so blessed when generations of Lamanites before them have been enshrouded in the darkness of unbelief and apostasy. Perhaps Alma provided the best explanation for this as he preached to the people in Ammonihah, In Alma chapter 13, verse 4, 
and he discussed the differential in belief that existed even in pre-mortality, saying that some in this realm, quote, have been called to this holy calling on account of their faith, while others would reject the Spirit of God on account of the hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, while if it had not been for this, they might have had as great privilege as their brethren. Perhaps with this in mind, then, we can conclude that Lamoni and his followers were among those in premortality who were called to this holy calling and did have faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, now in mortality, they are differentiated from their other brethren, the Lamanites, by being extended this great privilege to learn of and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ from Ammon and his brethren. This can remind us, of course, of the great privilege that has been extended to each of us as we are able in this final dispensation to embrace the saving doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to yoke ourselves to him through covenant. Well, let's take a look at the structure of Alma chapter 19. Verse 1 continues with the way we left off in Alma chapter 18, and we find that King Lamoni's family is now preparing his body for burial. They have mourned over him for two days and two nights. And now they're getting ready, as verse 1 says, to take his body and lay it in a sepulcher. The queen, however, as we learn in this next section, that extends from verses 2 through 6, is not ready to ex- uh, accept this outcome. She has a suspicion that something else is going on with her husband. And it is in this moment, I think, that we're getting a glimmer of her believing disposition as well. We're starting to wonder if she too has this elect nature about her and perhaps like Lamoni, she too is a pre-mortal covenant keeper who is about to be brought to a remembrance of the saving doctrine of Jesus Christ. So in her suspicion that something else is going on, she calls for Ammon. She expresses this idea to Ammon that the king's body is not truly ready for burial because to her he doth not stink, as verse 5 says. Then we come to the verse that um, we just read a moment ago, verse 6, that says this is indeed what Ammon desired. And then uh, Mormon explains what is actually happening to Lamoni, to us as readers. Then we return to the perspective of the queen in verses 7 through 11, and we see a dialogue that takes place here between the queen and Ammon. Ammon explains that Lamoni is only sleeping, and asks her if she believest thou this. And she said unto him, I believe that it shall be according as thou hast said. This is such a great display of faith on the queen's part that Ammon says there has not been such great faith among all the people of the Nephites. With this greater understanding, the queen, as it says in verse 11, watched over the bed of her husband from that time even until the time on the morrow, which Ammon had appointed that he should arise. Then we find in verses 12 through 14 that King Lamoni does arise. When he does so, he speaks. And in verse 12 says, Blessed be the name of God, and blessed art thou. 
and that second expression seems to be directed to his wife, the queen. Lamoni then speaks messianically, and at that point, he falls to the earth again, and he seems to do so in the way that he did at the end of the previous chapter in Alma chapter 18. This time, as we will see in verses 13 and 14, the queen and Ammon fall to the earth with King Lamoni as though they are dead. From this point, as we move into verse 15, we see something like a domino effect among uh, King Lamoni's servants who have seen all of this play out after going to the waters of Sebus with Ammon. They, too, fall to the earth, as it says in verse 16, and this, notably, is after they had called upon the name of the Lord in their might, and then all of them, all of these servants, fell to the earth. Then we read of one exception, who is Abish. Abish is described at the end of verse 16, and then we see what she does in verses 17 and 18. In her zeal and in her hope that the people who are subject to King Lamoni could be impressed by what they're seeing and ultimately be converted, she summons many people, as we'll read in these verses, and then brings them to the scene This, unfortunately, as we'll discover in verses 19 through 24, is the source of a lot of contention and trouble. It actually culminates in one Lamanite who comes upon the scene, and we find that he is the brother of one of those Lamanites who was killed by Ammon at the waters of Sebus. Specifically, we discover in verse 22, in fact, that it's the brother of the Lamanite who had been slain with the sword of Ammon. And we might remember that Ammon slew six with his sling and then slew the leader of those Lamanites with the sword. And so this would have been the brother of that leader. This brother attempts to raise his sword and do likewise to Ammon. He is unsuccessful in his attempt. And instead, it says twice, once in verse 22 and once in verse 24, that this assassin, or attempted assassin, fell dead. And it does not say fell as if he were dead, the phrase that we used in connection, or read in connection with Lamoni at the end of Alma chapter 18. Then we'll find in verses 25 through 27 that speculation and contention continues as the people that Abrish brought up, uh, to the scene, uh, th- this contention continues as these people wonder about Ammon's true identity. As we read in verse 28, this contention becomes exceedingly sharp among these people, and this seems to be a great disappointment to Abish, the woman servant. This is not the outcome that she had hoped for by gathering this multitude together. And uh, the verse says that she's sorrowful even unto tears as a result. And so at this point, she takes the queen by the hand that she might raise her from the ground. As she does so, the queen arises and speaks, and then she raises Lamoni. So we'll read of this in verses 28 through 32. Then this sequence continues in verse 33, where we will discover that Ammon and all of Lamoni's servants who had fallen as though they were dead, they arise And all of these who have now had this experience 
uh, are now ministering to the multitude that is in, in attendance. So in this sense, Abish does get her wish because now there are many of the multitude who are converted from this experience. We'll read in verse 35 that a church is organized among the believers as a result. This is an exciting outcome. And while we know that in the land of Nephi, a church was established sometime earlier by Alma and his over 400 followers, this seems to be the first time that the church is actually organized and is to be found among any Lamanites for many hundreds of years, extending back, in fact, to the time before the great split in 2 Nephi chapter 5, when Laman, Lemuel, Ishmael, and their families did have access to the priesthood covenants through Lehi and Nephi. So this is a great moment. The church is being organized among these believing Lamanites. So just as it were, we're having this thought, Mormon confirms our thoughts in the final verse of this chapter saying, yes, we see that his arm is extended to all people who will repent and believe on his name. Well, now to return to verse 1 for a reading of this chapter. And it came to pass that after two days and two nights, they were about to take his body and lay it in a sepulcher, which they had made for the purpose of burying their dead. Coming back now to Camille Franck's commentary that we consulted with a little bit in the previous chapter, and we'll learn more from her in this chapter. Again, this is from her contribution to Kent Jackson's Book of Mormon commentary that extends from 1 Nephi 1 to Alma 29. And it's called Show Forth Good Examples in Me. She writes, While Lamoni's body took on the appearance of death for three days, his spirit was very much alive and actively learning. Parallel ordeals of the same length of time are found throughout Scripture. Alma the Younger was unable to speak or move during the three days of his spiritual awakening. We read about that in Mosiah chapter 27. Paul received his sight after being blind three days. Christ used Jonah's three days experience in the belly of a great fish to teach his death and resurrection to the Pharisees. Each of these incidents points to the death and resurrection of the Messiah, whose body was in the tomb for three days while his spirit was in the spirit world. But one major difference separates the Savior from those who typify him. The sinless Christ was the teacher during his three days experience, whereas Lamoni, Alma, and Paul were students, being taught the principles of salvation and experiencing the pains of repentance. Christ's three days were not painful, nor were they days of darkness, because he is the light that shineth in darkness, the very light of the world. So as Franck says that these people who have had this experience, uh, Lamoni, Alma, and Paul, were taught the principles of salvation and that they experienced the pains of repentance, during this experience that she earlier describes as a, as a semi-comatose state where uh, these people's spirits were still very much active. She draws from Alma's ex, um, description of this experience to Helaman in Alma chapter 36 to uh, fully understand how it was that they were experiencing the pains of repentance. So, of course, we have that to look forward to in Alma chapter 36.
So now verse 2, as the queen sends for Ammon and asks him to come to see Lamoni, uh, because again, she has the idea that perhaps burying Lamoni is not the direction that this is actually going in, that his body does not need to be taken to a sepulcher. So verse 2, now the queen having heard of the fame of Ammon, therefore she sent and desired that he should come in unto her. And it came to pass that Ammon did as he was commanded, and went in unto the queen, and desired to know what she would that he should do. And she said unto him, The servants of my husband made it known unto me that thou art a prophet of a holy God, and that thou hast power to do many mighty works in his name. We're going to learn in a few verses, in fact, that these servants do have a believing disposition. So they are playing an important role here, too, and they must have the suspicion, uh, particularly those servants who joined Alma at the waters of Sebus. They must have the suspicion that this is not going to end in death for Lamoni as well. Then verse 5, Therefore, if this is the case, I would that ye should go in and see my husband, for he has been laid upon his bed for the space of two days and two nights, and some say that he is not dead, but others say that he is dead, and that he stinketh, and that he ought to be placed in the sepulcher. But as for myself, to me he doth not stink. This, of course, is an expression of faith, and also undoubtedly an expression of hope. Could it possibly be that King Lamoni is not dead? We're reminded in this verse, then, that there are many present who don't think that he is dead, and the queen is among them. Marion D. Hanks once wrote this of the queen's language when she says, To me he doth not stink. In the story of Ammon's missionary work among the Lamanites, there is one statement, uh, the unusual language of which sometimes evokes mirth in a student when he first hears it but which to me is one of the most sacred and provocative verses in all the record. The love of this faithful wife for her husband seems typical to me of the love which will obtain in the heavenly kingdom and which should here characterize our relationship with those dear to us. Now that Ammon has heard this expression of hope from the queen, we read this in verse 6. Now this was what Ammon desired. For he knew that King Lamoni was under the power of God. He knew that the dark veil of unbelief was being cast away from his mind, and the light which did light up his mind, which was the light of the glory of God, which was a marvelous light of his goodness. Yea, this light had infused such joy into his soul, the cloud of darkness having been dispelled, and that the light of everlasting life was lit up in his soul. Yea, he knew that this had overcome his natural frame, and he was carried away in God. Ogden and Skinner have written that verse 6 contains a succinct and powerful definition of true conversion, which involves dispelling darkness and being filled with light. We also learn that spiritual experiences being carried away in God can bring about a physically weakened condition. To study this interesting phenomenon, they say, examine the following series of scriptural passages. And here they refer to 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 7, which of course talks about how Lehi cast himself upon his bed after having a heavenly vision. Then also 1 Nephi chapter 17, where Nephi becomes weak in his dealings with his brethren. In verse 47, he says, I am full of the Spirit of God insomuch that my frame has no strength. 
Jacob chapter 7, verses, verse 21, uh, is something that we referred to earlier. And this is when the multitude that is surrounding Sherem uh, falls to the earth and they are overcome. Then Ogden and Skinner provide several other references as well. Alma chapter 27, Alma chapter 36, Moses chapter 1. So this happened to Moses and to Daniel. It's recorded in Daniel chapter 8 and in Daniel chapter 10. Bruce R. McConkie has written this in his New Witness to the Articles of Faith. We have no better illustration of the full operation of the light of Christ upon an investigator of the gospel than what happened to King Lamoni. Thereafter, Lamoni was baptized and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. There is really no excuse for men to reject the gospel message. When they do so, it is because of spiritual blindness or because their deeds are evil and they love darkness rather than light. If they would but hearken to the voice of conscience, to the voice of the light within them, to the voice of the Spirit, they would come unto Christ and receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, Richard Rust has written, both physically and figuratively, light and whiteness are associated with truth, purity, and divine guidance, just as darkness is associated with unbelief and error. To move from darkness to light gives concrete meaning to the process of redemption. This is apparent in Lamoni's experience when he entered unconsciousness into a dark condition, but arose from it enlightened. The dark veil of unbelief was being cast away from his mind, and the light of everlasting life was lit up in his soul. Verse 7, as we're still learning what Alma's perspective is on this entire experience, Therefore, what the queen desired of him was his only desire. So Ammon had been hoping for this outcome all along, it seems. Therefore, he went in to see the king according as the queen had desired him. And he saw the king, and he knew that he was not dead. And he said unto the queen, He is not dead, but he sleepeth in God, and on the morrow he shall rise again, therefore bury him not. There have been those who surrounded the king so far who expressed their opinion that he was not dead. And now Ammon arrives upon the scene, and he does more than simply express an opinion. He proclaims this. He says he is not dead, but he sleepeth in God. This shows us that Ammon is on an entirely different spiritual plane than the other people that are present. He's ready, really, to help them navigate through this process of having the light of everlasting life lit up in the souls of of the people that surround him. Verse 9, And Ammon said unto her, meaning the queen, Believest thou this? And she said unto him, I have had no witness save thy word and the word of our servants. Nevertheless, I believe that it shall be according as thou hast said. Now we get this expression in chapter 10 that sounds very similar to expressions that the Savior has said and will say later in the Book of Mormon. And Ammon said unto her, Blessed art thou because of thy exceeding faith. I say unto thee, woman, there has not been such great faith among all the people of the Nephites. Ogden and Skinner have written of this verse. In verse 10, notice the Jewish form of expressing respect and honor toward a female. I say unto thee, woman. Ammon prayed for the Spirit to touch the people, and it happened. Miracles are always involved in the conversion process. 
They include, in this case, a Lamanite woman had been converted through a remarkable vision of her father. A missionary could not be killed. A queen spoke words not understood by others. Hearts had been changed. Of course, this is forecasting what we're about to read in this chapter. And many had seen and talked with angels. Which of these miracles was the greatest? Incidentally, this Lamanite woman, Abish, is one of only four women mentioned by name in the Book of Mormon. The other three are Sariah, Mary, and Isabel. As with the Bible, women are included by name in the scriptural narratives only when they play a significant part in a story or a teaching. The conversion of Abish played an important role in the conversion of large numbers of Lamanites and demonstrates the far-reaching effects of a righteous father on a daughter and on society. Now we can see in verse 11 that Abish is fully accepting what it is that Ammon is telling her. It says, And it came to pass that she watched over the bed of her husband from that time, even until that time on the morrow, which Ammon had appointed that he should rise. So the queen has made her decision. She has sided with those present who believe that Lamoni is not dead. We can tell contextually here that she countered the suggestion that Lamoni's body should be taken to the sepulcher uh, because she stays with the bed of her husband, so that's where he stays. And now she is expressing her faith by watching over him until he rises again. Robert D. Hales has written, The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The first step to finding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to let his word, spoken by the mouth of his servants, the prophets, touch your heart. But it is not enough merely to let those words wash over you, as if they alone could transform you. We must do our part. So that is certainly what we're seeing in the queen here. Now verse 12, we will see King Lamoni arise, and then other miraculous occurrences will take place after that. And it came to pass that he arose, according to the words of Ammon. And as he arose, he stretched forth his hand unto the woman and said, Blessed be the name of God, and blessed art thou. For as sure as thou livest, behold, I have seen my Redeemer, and he shall come forth and be born of a woman, and he shall redeem all mankind who believe on his name. Now, when he had said these words, his heart was swollen within him, and he sunk again with joy. And the queen also sunk down, being overpowered by the Spirit. So, Lamoni only appears for a few moments. He proclaims these things and then falls as if he is dead again, this time joined by the queen. Now, Ammon, seeing the Spirit of the Lord poured out upon, according to his prayers upon the Lamanites, his brethren, who had been the cause of so much mourning among the Nephites, or among all the people of God because of their iniquities and their traditions, he fell upon his knees and began to pour out his soul in prayer and thanksgiving to God for what he had done for his brethren. And he was also overpowered with joy, and thus they all three had sunk to the earth. We can see from this that Ammon is not only overcome because of the conversion of these two specific people, it's also the significance of the fact that this son of King Laman himself, Lamoni, uh, is apparently the first among the Nephites or among the Lamanites 
in many, many generations to be converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with that said, we will read of an individual exception here in just a moment. But now in verse 15, we'll find that King Lamoni's servants go in this same direction. Now, when the servants of the king had seen that they had fallen, they also began to cry unto God, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them also. For it was they who had stood before the king and testified unto him concerning the great power of Ammon. So remember that they were quick to conclude that Ammon was the great spirit, these particular servants. So they were attuned to that idea, and these are undoubtedly the same servants who have been defending the idea over the last two days that Lamoni is sleeping, that he's not actually dead. They also have this idea, as does the queen. And so they too have great faith. Verse 16, And it came to pass that they did call upon the name of the Lord, these servants, in their might, even until they had all fallen to the earth, save it were one of the Lamanitish women, whose name was Abish. Now this they that is used is uh, has reference to these servants who are calling upon the name of the Lord. And it's clear that among them are male and female, because one of them that is still standing in the end is Abish. Then we learn that she, having been converted unto the Lord for many years on account of a remarkable vision of her father. So, this conversion of Lamoni seems to be the first uh, great movement within the Lamanite nation where the church can be established, as I'd mentioned earlier. But we can see that there were individual instances from time to time of those who lived among the Lamanites who were converted unto the Lord. This includes Abish and also a remarkable vision of her father, so her father as well. I think we can guess here that even though Abish and her father were converted unto the Lord, which is the uh, verbiage that's used here in verse 16, that they nevertheless did not have access to the church. This tells us something very significant, I think it is safe to say, about those who could be living today in lands where they do not have access to the church, but who are still, to the extent that it is possible, converted unto the Lord. Daniel Ludlow has written in his Companion to Your Study of the Book of Mormon, If for no other reason, Abish the Lamanitish woman is distinguished because her actual name appears in the Book of Mormon. The brief account of the conversion of Abish is not clear. The statement that Abish had been converted unto the Lord for many years on account of a remarkable vision of her father may have two possible interpretations. One interpretation is that Abish herself had this vision and in her vision she saw her father. Another possible interpretation is that the vision was actually had by the father of Abish. Regardless of which interpretation is correct, this conversion of Abish plays an important role in converting large numbers of Lamanites. Here is commentary from Heather B. Moore in an article called Abish as she considers the same event. Although we read nothing more about Abish from this point onward, the events that included Abish's courageous actions from a turning point in the Book of Mormon, a vital transformation in the history of her people, her one-voice role in conjunction with the missionary work of Ammon played a critical part in thousands of Lamanites' lives as they were brought to the knowledge of the Lord.
As a Lamanite servant, she was the one who gathered her people to the king's house so they could witness the conversion of their king and queen. Through her actions, a large crowd of Lamanites was taught by the king, the queen, Ammon, and the servants, and was eventually converted. We'll read all of this in in a moment. The courageous actions of a common servant, someone like many of those who had come to see what the commotion was all about, combined with the testimonies of others, changed many lives in ways that can be measured only in eternity. Now at this point, as we move into verse 17, all who will fall as though they are dead have fallen. It is, again, Lamoni, his wife the queen, Ammon, and many servants. This will provide us with our final opportunity to to consider this comatose or the semi-comatose state, as Camille Franck put it, or the way in which these people have fallen as though they were dead. And uh, McConkie and Millet will comment on this as they have in the previous chapter and use the word trance in an interesting way. The story of Ammon and Lamoni affirms religious trances as a legitimate revelatory device. Lamoni, as already noted, came forth from his trance, testifying that he had seen the Redeemer and then prophesied relative to the Savior's birth and the necessity of all mankind believing on his name. The testimony of his servants was that while they were in this state of physical insensibility, angels instructed them in the principles of salvation and their obligation to live righteously. Indeed, they experienced a change of heart and no longer had a desire to do evil. Such is the state in which the power of God overcomes the natural frame and one is carried away in God. Yet, the trance, like all other spiritual experiences, is subject to counterfeiting. Such counterfeits were common, for instance, to the frontier camp meetings of the United States. The trance might be likened to another medium of revelation, namely that of the gift of tongues, which was also commonly mimicked at the camp meetings and in many other settings. None would question tongues as a legitimate gift of heaven, and likewise there is no question that the gift of tongues has been and is often counterfeited. Though a trance is not sufficient proof of true religion, it certainly does not militate against it, as the Bible both Old and New Testaments and the Book of Mormon attest. It is of interest that the false prophet Shemaiah wrote to the priest Zephaniah, charging him to keep the temple a house of order by putting the mad prophets in prison and in stocks. His reference to mad prophets is understood to have been directed to those prophets who claimed authority through some ecstasy or trance. His purpose in so doing was to have the prophet Jeremiah imprisoned, it being well known that Jeremiah made claim to such experiences. And that comes out of Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 26 through 27 the test of the legitimacy of the religious trance, like that of tongues, is the efficacy of its purpose. Its genuineness must be ascertained by the same standards that determine the verity of revelation in all other forms. That is, by the asking of such questions as, does it teach faith in Christ, repentance, sacrifice, obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, and loyalty to the Lord's current and constituted church and his anointed servants. Now we'll see in verse 17 what it is that Abish does in this situation. She uh, clearly desires a certain outcome that does not come about right away, but ultimately it does. Verse 17, Thus having been converted to the Lord, 
and never having made it known. Therefore, when she saw that all the servants of Lamoni had fallen to the earth, and also her mistress the queen, and the king, and Ammon lay prostrate upon the earth, she knew that it was the power of God. And supposing that this opportunity, by making known unto the people what had happened among them, that by beholding this scene it would cause them to believe in the power of God, therefore she ran forth from house to house, making it known unto the people. Uh, Here is what Camille Franck wrote of this incident. Visions are not idly given by the Lord, but reserved for specific purposes. One of the Lord's purposes for visions is preparing men for salvation. The case of Abish cannot be seen as an exception, for she was prepared to help her people come to a knowledge of salvation. When she witnessed the condition of the king's court, she recognized the power of God and knew what she must do. Her testimony as a Lamanite strengthened the testimony of Ammon, a Nephite foreigner, and satisfied the law of witnesses. Verse 18, And they, meaning the people, began to assemble themselves together unto the house of the king. And there came a multitude, and to their astonishment they beheld the king and the queen and their servants prostrate upon the earth, and they all lay there as though they were dead. And they also saw Ammon, and behold, he was a Nephite. Verse 19, And now the people began to murmur among themselves, some saying that it was a great evil that had come upon them, or upon the king and his house, because he had suffered that the Nephite should remain in the land. But others rebuked them, saying, The king hath brought this evil upon his house, because he slew his servants who had had their flocks scattered at the waters of Sebus. So it seems that King Lamoni's tendency to do this with his servants was widely known, and there are some who felt that this would be an appropriate consequence for his acts. That is insightful, I think, and suggests perhaps that those who are saying this are more given to matters of conscience than the other Lamanites who are present and are more susceptible to being converted through the efforts of Abish. They continue with this line of reasoning in verse 21 by saying, And they were also rebuked by those men who had stood at the waters of Sebus and scattered the flocks which belonged to the king. For they were angry with Ammon because of the number which he had slain of their brethren at the waters of Sebus while defending the flocks of the king. So this is really surprising and fascinating and something we talked about a couple chapters back to discover that those marauders who were at the waters of Sebus are now among the multitude that is gathered around the bodies or the persons of Lamoni, the queen, Ammon, and these servants who are laying as though they are dead. They are holding to the opinion that what they are seeing is retribution for Lamoni's actions and, of course, Ammon's actions in slaying these marauders. In this sense, ironically, I think these godless people are acknowledging the divine. And again, I think it may show that they do have a tendency towards faith. Now we will read of one of these who is the brother of the leader that Ammon slew with the sword. Verse 22, Now one of them, whose brother had been slain with the sword of Ammon, being exceedingly angry with Ammon, drew his sword and went forth that he might let it fall upon Ammon to slay him. And as he lifted the sword to smite him, behold, he fell dead. Now we see that Ammon could not be slain. For the Lord had said unto Mosiah his father, I will spare him. 
and it shall be unto him according to thy faith. Therefore Mosiah trusted him unto the Lord. This is the second reference to this promise that has been given to Ammon's father, Mosiah. It reminds us, I think, that the immense faith of Mosiah and Mosiah's righteousness, which was so singular and unusual, is also behind everything that's happening here. Clyde Williams has written, The Lord has promised his servants in this dispensation that he would go before them and be on their right hand and on their left and preserve them as they seek to spread the gospel throughout the nations of the earth. Undoubtedly, this promise holds true unless one is appointed unto death, or, as in some cases, the Lord suffereth the righteous to be slain, that his justice and judgment may come upon the wicked. Now, as Williams writes this, I think we can think about the contrast between Abinadi's fate and Alma and Amulek's fate. Now, uh, Williams continues, Many missionaries today have received promises of divine protection during their settings apart, in patriarchal blessings or in their father's blessings. I am convinced that when the mighty works of God are unfolded for this dispensation, we shall see countless examples of the hand of the Lord providing protection for his servants as they go about the work of spreading the gospel throughout the world. So, to me, Williams seems to be saying that uh, Ammon being spared by the efforts of this brother who tries to kill him with a sword, this is an obvious example of divine intervention. And Williams is saying that there are perhaps more times than we realize where this is happening for us and for those who are or are ordained by God to go about and to do his work. Verse 24, And it came to pass that when the multitude beheld that the man had fallen dead, who lifted the sword to slay Ammon, fear came upon them all, and they durst not put forth their hands to touch him or any of those who had fallen. And they began to marvel again among themselves what could be the cause of this great power or what all these things could mean. The use of the word fear, I think, is interesting in this verse. Fear came upon them all. These are people who are impressed with the power that they're seeing, and they're wondering what it's all about. In Moses chapter 6, we see something similar with Enoch and the way that he is regarded by the people. Verse 37 through 39 say, And it came to pass that Enoch went forth in the land among the people, standing upon the hills and the high places, and cried with a loud voice, testifying against their works, and all men were offended because of him. And they came forth to hear him upon the high places, saying unto the tent keepers, Tarry ye here and keep the tents, while ye go yonder to behold the seer, for he prophesieth. And there is a strange thing in the land, a wild man hath come among us. And it came to pass that when they heard him, no man laid hands on him, for fear came on them that heard him, for he walked with God. This seems to be the same type of fear that is being described here. It uh, has the potential of being converted into an awe that leads to belief and faith by those who are so predisposed, and we'll discover that that is what will happen with many who are present. Well, the issue isn't entirely settled, however, for those who see what happens to this man who's uh, slain by the power of God as he tries to slay Ammon. And so this dialogue continues between these two contending parties, 
and verses 25 through 27. Verse 25, And it came to pass that there were many among them who said that Ammon was the great spirit, and others said he was sent by the great spirit. But others rebuked them all, saying that he was a monster who had been sent from the Nephites to torment them. And there were some who said that Ammon was sent by the great spirit to afflict them because of their iniquities, and that it was the great spirit that had always attended the Nephites, who had ever delivered them out of their hands. And they said that it was this great spirit who had destroyed so many of their brethren, the Lamanites. I think from this that we might, we might be seeing three lines of reasoning, actually. There are some who seem to believe that Ammon is the great spirit, and that this has the potential of being a good thing. There are others present, as it says in verse 26, who are still so spiritually insensitive to what they're seeing that they simply accuse him of, of being a monster who was sent from the Nephites to torment them. So their opinions are still embedded in this concept of group identity between Lamanites and between Nephites, and they're discounting the idea that this one individual, Ammon, could be something different than the Nephites as they understand them more broadly. Then in verse 27, we get this third line of reasoning, which is kind of a combination of the previous two, where there are those who acknowledge that he was sent by the great spirit, but this was a great spirit who, for some reason or another, had always attended the Nephites and who had always delivered the Nephites out of the Lamanite hands. So they're explaining why there have been battles in the past, and we can think about uh, Zenith, for example, how he withstood uh, the Lamanites in his battles, and how this also happened for King Noah. We're seeing this now from the Lamanite perspective, and they're saying, well, there may have been a great spirit who facilitated their uh, deliverance in these cases, and now they're saying that Ammon might be an instrument, uh, basically, of destruction who is being sent forth by the great spirit. So this contention continues to escalate, as we discover in verse 28, so Abish decides to act. Verse 28, And thus the contention began to be exceedingly sharp among them. And while they were thus contending, the woman servant who had caused the multitude to be gathered together came, of course this is Abish, and when she saw the contention which was among the multitude, she was exceedingly sorrowful even unto tears. Uh, now that's not just because of the contention, but it's because of all that it means and because of, uh, of her hopes. Here's a person that has been an island among the Nephites, or excuse me, among the Lamanites in the land of Nephi. She's been converted unto the Lord to the extent that she can be without having access to the, uh, the ordinances of the true and living church which again, I'll add, is really instructive as we think about others who could be in that situation today in lands where they don't have access to the true and living church and the ordinances thereof. So she's exceedingly sorrowful because she had hoped for a better outcome from this entire experience. So she decides to act and to take the queen by the hand. Verse 29, And it came to pass that she, Abish, went and took the queen by the hand, that perhaps she might raise her from the ground. And as soon as she touched her hand, she arose and stood upon her feet and cried with a loud voice, saying, O blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell. O blessed God, have mercy on this people. So as the queen arises, she says these beautiful words, 
and they are centered around the idea of mercy and deliverance. So that is the discovery that she has made. And when uh, Alma the Younger elucidates upon his similar experience that he had in Mosiah chapter 27, and then as he elucidates upon that in Alma chapter 36, he too will key in on this idea that he's been delivered from an awful hell and that he's been able to access the mercy of Jesus Christ. So verse 30, after the queen has said this, And when she had said this, she clasped her hands, being filled with joy, speaking many words which were not understood. And when she had done this, she took the king Lamoni by the hand, and behold, he arose and stood upon his feet. So now Lamoni is, is with her, and he's back into consciousness. And uh, now he will act. It's very interesting that prior to doing this, the queen spoke many words which were not understood. That, of course, could either be because she spoke in a foreign language to those who were present uh, through the gift of tongues, or it is because she spoke things that were not conceptually understood by those who were present. Verse 31, And he, meaning Lamoni, immediately, seeing the contention among his people, went forth and began to rebuke them and to teach them the words which he had heard from the mouth of Ammon, and as many as heard his words believed and were converted unto the Lord. It's instructive for us, I think, and might remind us of a recent conference talk by Elder Holland when he talked about coming down from peak spiritual experiences and finding mundane troubles that have to be attended to. We can see that this is a pattern, and this is what is happening to Lamoni in this instance. Post-illumination affliction is the way that Elder Holland used it, and he was borrowing from the words of Paul. Lamoni is showing this here because of the way that he has to rebuke some of those who are present. However, as the verse goes on, we see that he is able to teach them the words which he had heard from the mouth of Ammon, and this outcome that Abish had hoped for is now coming to fruition. And as many as heard his words believed and were converted unto the Lord. So now we have additional people among the multitude who is present who did believe and who were converted to the Lord. Of course, in a few moments here, we'll discover that the church was actually organized then among these people. Camille Franck wrote, Those who experience the mighty change in their hearts are converted by hearing the word of God when it is accompanied by a witness of the Holy Ghost. Some may conclude that it was the miraculous show of power that gave Lamoni's people their testimonies. We misunderstand the faith of these people and the power of the word of God if that is what we conclude. Alma the Younger and Lamoni had similar miraculous spiritual awakenings. Alma bore witness that it was the Holy Spirit who gave him his testimony, not the angel. And uh, we read of that in Alma chapter 5. Those born of God do not require miracles for conversion, but respond to the teachings of the Spirit. This is such a wonderful point by Camille Franck, and it seems to be the thing that Alma was teaching the people of Zarahemla in Alma chapter 5, when he makes it clear that his testimony and conviction are born of his experiences with the Spirit and through studying the Word and fasting and praying many days. He does not tie, in that instance, his conversion to that supernatural encounter with the angel in Mosiah chapter 27. So, 
uh, Camille Franck is saying that the same applies here to King Lamoni. There is a semantics issue here, I think, uh, because she says those born of God do not require miracles for conversion. In this case, from a semantics perspective, she's she's referring to the miracle of having uh, the visitation of a supernatural being or falling to the earth as if you're dead and going into what McConkie and Millet are calling a trance. But we can add here, of course, that conversion any time when an individual uses their agency to turn towards Christ and to be filled with the light that was previously described, that too, of course, is a miracle, and that really is the miracle. Then we find this verse uh, in verse 32, which kind of reflects something that is, uh, has been referred to as fractional theology. Um, we see it in the, the third of the hosts of heaven, and we see it in the book of Revelation. Uh, but there were many among them who would not hear his words. Therefore, they went their way. This always seems to be the case. And uh, this, of course, was intimated in Alma chapter 13 as well, when Alma talked about those in pre-mortality who went their own way. Perhaps they were not cast out with that third, but they were not given the same advantage as their brethren. So, even after witnessing these remarkable events, there were those, and it says that there were many among them, who still were not receptive, and they went their way. Now in verse 33, we'll find that Ammon finally arises, as do Lamoni's other servants who had fallen as though they were dead. And it came to pass that when Ammon arose, he also administered unto them, and also did all the servants of Lamoni. And they did all declare unto the people the selfsame thing, that their hearts had been changed, that they had no more desire to do evil. Ogden and Skinner have written that verse 33 further defines the purpose of true conversion. Hearts had been changed, that they had no more desire to do evil. President Joseph F. Smith describes his conversion, I was indeed cleansed from sin. My heart was touched, and I felt that I would not injure the smallest insect beneath my feet. I felt as if I wanted to do good everywhere, to everybody, and to everything. I felt a newness of life, a newness of desire to do that which was right. There was not one particle of desire for evil left in my soul. That, by the way, can be found in his book, Gospel Doctrine. It's a beautiful expression of the desire that those who are converted are overcome with, uh, where they have no more disposition to do sin but to do good continually, as we read of King Benjamin's subjects. Here's something that President Henry B. Eyring once wrote. It's from a September 2004 Enzyme article called, We Must Raise Our Sights. He says, that mighty change is reported time after time in the Book of Mormon. The way it is wrought and what the person becomes are always the same. The words of God, in pure doctrine, go down deep into the heart by the power of the Holy Ghost. The person pleads with God in faith. The repentant heart is broken and the spirit contrite. Sacred covenants have been made. Then God keeps his covenant to grant a new heart and a new life in his time. Whether the miracle comes in a moment or over years, as is far more common, it is the doctrine of Jesus Christ that drives the change. The world in which young people live is changing rapidly. 
When their older brothers and sisters return to visit the same schools and campuses they attended, they find a radically different moral climate. The language in the hallways and the locker rooms has coarsened. Clothing is less modest. Pornography has moved into the open. Not only has tolerance for wickedness increased, but much of what was called wrong is no longer condemned at all and may even by our Latter-day Saint youth be admired. Parents and leaders have in many cases bent to the pressures coming from a shifting world to retreat from moral standards once widely accepted. The spiritual strength sufficient for our youth to stand firm just a few years ago will soon not be enough. Many of them are remarkable in their spiritual maturity and in their faith, but even the best of them are sorely tested, and the testing will become more severe. Too many of our young people want the blessings of a mission and the temple, and yet fail to meet the qualifications to claim them. For many of our youth, next year is a long way away, and beyond a year looks like forever. To them, missions and the temple are far distant in some future time when the joys of youth have flown away. Those goals are distant enough that too many, far too many, say to themselves, Well, I know I may have to repent someday, and I know that a mission and temple marriage will require big changes, but I can always take care of that when the time comes. I have a testimony. I know the scriptures. I know what it takes to repent. I'll see the bishop when it's time, and I'll make the changes later. I'm only young once. For now, I'll go with the flow. Well, the flow has become a flood and soon will be a torrent. It will become a torrent of sounds and sights and sensations that invite temptation and offend the Spirit of God. Swimming back upstream to purity against the tides of the world was never easy. It is getting harder and may soon be frighteningly difficult. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ must go down into the hearts of young people by the power of the Holy Ghost. It will not be enough for them to have had a spiritual witness of the truth and to want good things later. It will not be enough for them to hope for some future cleansing and strengthening. Our aim must be for them to become truly converted to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ while they are young. Then they will have gained a strength from what they are, not only from what they know. They will become disciples of Christ. They will be his spiritual children who always remember him with gratitude and in faith. They will then have the Holy Ghost as a constant companion. Their hearts will be turned outward, concerned for the temporal and spiritual welfare of others. They will walk humbly, they will feel cleansed, and they will look on evil with abhorrence. Again, that's from President Henry B. Eyring from an Ensign article in 2004 called We Must Raise Our Sights. Remarkable example, I think, of a modern-day prophet. So once again, we've seen in verse 32 that there were some who did not hear his words and they went their way, but that there were others who did declare unto the people the self-same thing, meaning these servants, as they ministered to the people, uh, they declared the self-same thing as Lamoni and Ammon, that their hearts had been changed and they had no more desire to do evil. So verse 34, And behold, many did declare unto the people that they had seen angels and had conversed with them, and thus they had told them things of God and of his righteousness. So now Abish is seeing this play out, and she is now seeing that the multitude that she has gathered, while some went their own way, some have stayed, and they are receptive to these people who have fallen as though they were dead. 
and they're being told by these people that they had seen angels and conversed with them. So she is seeing the outcome that she so fervently desired. And now in verses 35 and 36, Abish will see yet something else that she has undoubtedly fervently desired. A church is organized among the believers. And it came to pass that there were many that did believe in their words, and as many as did believe were baptized, and they became a righteous people, and they did establish a church among them. So we can see here, just as we saw in Alma's ministry, as it began in Alma chapter 4, and he went to Zarahemla, then he went to Gideon, then to Melech, then to Ammonihah. And of course, we can guess that he went to other places as well, since he was headed south to Manti uh, when he ran into the sons of Mosiah. But in all of these instances, we find that it wasn't simply enough for Alma to teach the people these things. And in this case, it's not enough for Ammon to teach the people these things. But we know that in order to fully access the saving grace and the mercy and the merits of Christ, we must yoke ourselves to him through covenants that are mediated and administered by priesthood authority. That is what is, that is, what is implied when the church is organized. So that is what's happening here among these Lamanites. Here again is commentary from Camille Franck. Once they understand the gospel plan, converts know to whom they must turn for mercy and forgiveness. Notice the initial explanations made by those who repented and were born again. When Lamoni regained consciousness, he stood and bore witness of the Savior, as did his queen. Many people have an intense desire to bear witness of Christ once they have experienced the blessings of his atonement. This witness may be given in words, but as has been illustrated in these chapters of the Book of Mormon, people witness Christ's reality frequently and powerfully by their lives. They take the Lord's request to heart, show forth good examples unto them in me which is a phrase that comes from Alma, chapter 17, verse 11. Show forth good examples unto them in me. That is what the Lord said to the sons of Mosiah as they were reaching the borders of the land of Nephi, and uh, they requested his help, and he spoke to them before they dispersed. Now the final verse of this chapter, as we read all of this with wonder, and thus the work of the Lord did commence among the Lamanites. Thus the Lord did begin to pour out his Spirit upon them, and we see that his arm is extended to all people who will repent and believe on his name. There would have been plenty, if not most, in the land of Zarahemla who would never have believed that this thing could take place, that the work of the Lord could commence among the Lamanites. As far as we know, there was no precedence for this, not for centuries. And again, as with Abish's conversion, it can lead us to think about how things like this can happen in our day in distant lands. Thus, as Mormon says editorially here, and he doesn't say thus we see, but this does seem to fall into that category of Mormon's thus we see statements. He says thus, as you consider this incredibly unlikely thing that the work of the Lord did commence among the Lamanites, the Lord did begin to pour out his Spirit upon them, and we see. So actually, we have our thus, and we have our we see in this verse. And we see that his arm is extended to all people who will repent and believe on his name. Including, we might add, 
those who seem like unlikely candidates. But those who, as Alma taught in the pre-earth life, were given to faith and covenant-making, and who trusted in the salvation of Jesus Christ, and therefore gained the great advantage of being able to receive the gospel. So now this miraculous and marvelous work is taking place among the Lamanites. And we'll turn in just a moment to Alma chapter 20 to see how this story continues, and we'll be brought to wonder how Ammon's brothers did, uh, specifically Aaron and his companions, Mulekai and Amma, in their corner of the vineyard. And we'll discover that their stories converge as we go on, as will the story of Lamoni and his father. So for now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 19. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.